Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter. (laughs) What is that moan back there? My, My son's comment was, oh, you actually made it to the 11th chapter? I will actually tell you where we're going. There is a pattern to all of this. Uh... This is Lesson uh, 21. Lesson 31 is going to be on Proverbs 31, and then we're going to be done, okay? So between now and then, we're going to have 10 more lessons about various aspects of the book of Proverbs. Um, I have found it fascinating working through it, studying it, primarily with regard to how at variance the book of Proverbs is with so much of what we see in the world around us today. Um, The whole idea of a truth that is not relative to some condition is um, viewed as extremist in the world that we live in today. And the book of Proverbs makes some very absolute statements. You're supposed to do this You're not supposed to do that. There is a way of wisdom. There is a way of foolishness. And we seem to have a lot of people who enjoy going down the path of foolishness. They enjoy it because it is enjoyable until you get to the end of the road. And then all of a sudden it isn't very enjoyable at all. It's like the analogy that I used several, several weeks ago. You can love roller coasters, and you can have a blast riding on a roller coaster. But if you knew that at the last hill of the roller coaster there was no track, all of a sudden that enjoyment that you thought you were having at the beginning of the roller coaster would be tempered by the realization that at the end there's a large drop. The book of Proverbs is given to us to tell us that on the path of the way of foolishness, there is no track at the end of the roller coaster. It is just a drop. And it is by faith that we understand that God is instructing us on how we live our lives. So, picking up in chapter 11, verse 1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales. But accurate weights are his delight. It seems almost like a trivial matter. The Lord abhors dishonest scales. But if you look in the book of Leviticus, when God is giving the law, not just the Ten Commandments that we see in the book of Exodus, but the law on how the nation of Israel is to operate, one of the things he highlights on two occasions is the need for honest weights. What does this mean? Well, when I would go to the merchant to buy something or to sell something, I would put it on a scale, and he would pull out the one-pound weight, put it on there and go, that's one pound. I'll pay you a certain amount for that item or I'll charge you a certain amount for that item depending on which way the transaction was going. Well, it appears that there were 
disreputable merchants who would have one set of scales if they were selling and a different set of scales if they were buying. So instead of getting a pound, you might get something less than a pound when you were buying something, and you might be selling something and sell more than a pound, but the weight says it's only a pound. I think it's interesting. I had a friend who was Lebanese, and he said that today, you know, in the Middle East, if you go buy a piece of gold jewelry, the first thing they do is they weigh it. Then they look in the book and say, the price of gold today is what? And that's the starting price. Then you can bicker over the craftsmanship, the work involved in making something out of it. But the weight itself is a given. Now, why is it so important to God that he would repeat it in Leviticus, he would repeat it several times in the book of Proverbs, when he gets around to the prophets, one of the complaints that the prophets have about the people is that they are using dishonest scales. Why does God care so much about something as mundane as buying and selling things? Long pause. Pardon? It comes down to honesty or dishonesty. Yes, Alan. It is the reality of where they were. Everything was bought and sold. Everything had to go through this marketplace. And if there was no honesty in the marketplace, the society itself would be in danger. In the book of Leviticus, when God is setting up the rules for a theocracy, which is what Israel was, and by the way, we're not, but that's a whole different story. When he was setting up the rules for a theocracy, he understood that if there was no trust, no honesty in the marketplace, there was no trust, there was no honesty in every other relationship in life. We can pretend, we can pretend that I can be a little shady in business because, hey, that's what business people do, right? And at the same time, be totally honest in my relationships with spouse, my relationship with children, friends, etc. We can pretend that we can do that, but we can't. What God is saying here is that little thing, the honesty of your measurement, reflects on the trust and honesty that you have and is a reflection of your character and covers every aspect of your life. The Lord abhors, that's a pretty strong word, abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. God we sometimes think God is only interested in big theological things, okay? God is interested in uh, us sitting around discussing the Trinity. 
us sitting around discussing the attributes of God, us sitting around discussing predestination, all those nice theological things, God's interested in that. Well, those things are important. Understanding who God is is important. But if understanding who God is isn't carried over into your daily life, what good is it? God is interested in how your relationship with God displays itself in the minor, everyday, mundane aspects of life. And what he's interested in is honesty in your relationships with other people. Now, in the United States today, maybe we don't have a problem with dishonest scales. Hmm. We have a National Bureau of Standards, did you know this, that actually is responsible for measuring all the scales. They have a piece of some metal stored away in a vault that is the one-pound weight that all other weights are measured against. Did you know that? They have one that's the gram. They have one that they have the weights. And the metric ones, every so often, are taken to Europe and compared with theirs to make sure that they haven't changed. We have standards that we use. But you know what? We have those standards because we know that individuals in their sinful conditions will still try to circumvent those standards every chance they get. That's why we have people who go around with a five-gallon tank, and they take the gas pump, and they put five gallons in it. And they go, ah, it says five gallons. Ah, it's five gallons. And they put a sticker on that. We live in a world of fallen people. We do. But we also live in a world where you and I, as we walk on the path of wisdom, are called to live lives of honesty in all of our relationships. They shouldn't have to come put a sticker on your forehead that says you've been approved by the National Bureau of Standards to be an accurate measurer. They shouldn't have to do that. Why? Because the fact that you acknowledge that you tell people that you are a believer should be that sticker on your forehead. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's not. I had a friend who was in the computer business, building and et cetera, computers. And he said that he always enjoyed working with the Mormons. Because if the Mormons told you they were going to do something, they were going to do it. We agreed, we'll work out the contract stuff later, we agreed, and they got done. That is good. That's a good thing. That should be the mark of all of us who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to be following the path of wisdom. The Lord abhors dishonest weights, scales, but accurate weights are his delight. He gets happy. Isn't that interesting? He gets happy when people are honest. Huh. 
kind of an interesting picture. It's like God sitting up there and going, ha, did you see that guy? He's doing the right thing. Isn't that great? It's like he's cheering us on to follow the path of wisdom, to follow the path of honesty in all of our dealings with other people. Questions? Comments? We don't have any problem with that one, right? We could have a lot of problems. I won't go there. Verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. What is humility? Forgetting yourself? Submitting to authority? Being down to earth? Being, pardon? Being humble. <laughs> pardon? Prideless. Strength under control. That's what we usually think of when we think of the word meek. Uh, that is in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. What does the world today think of humility? Weakness. Wimp. I was reading some article today during the week about some rock star who I don't even know who he was. And he says, oh, people are telling me that I should be more humble. But hey, when you're stupendous like me, what else can you do? Candy can't believe somebody would actually say it. <laughs> and that's the interesting point. We are shocked and surprised when people say it. We're actually not that shocked and surprised that people believe it. We're surprised that they would actually utter the words out of their mouth. That's because we still come from some semblance of a Christian tradition and somehow, some way, we know humility is supposed to be good. We're just not sure why or how. Therefore, we won't badmouth it too much, but we won't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But the fascinating thing is the Scripture talks about humility all the time. A lot. Back in chapter 3, we saw that God rewards those who are humble. That verse is so interesting that it gets quoted twice in the New Testament. God is interested in giving blessings to those who are humble. And he is interested in taking the prideful and whacking them down a few notches. Why? In fact, let's ask the flip side of the question. We ask what was humility. What is pride? Pride is taking credit and humility is giving credit to God. 
It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. You and I will have that discussion later. Huh? There's probably a country western song with that in the title, yes. Go ahead, somebody over here. Somebody have something? Exalting yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, he's a running joke around our house, but in a good way. We like him. Huh? Feeling superior. Why does God get so perturbed at the prideful? Because they think they don't need God. To the extent that I believe that somehow, some way, I can do it on my own, that somehow, some way, I am worthy of being rewarded with great things because of who I am, because of the group that I belong to, because of the organization I belong to, because of the church I belong to, when I believe that I can do it, then we are not seeking the will of God in our lives. What we do is we view God as a buddy of ours and we'll sit around and chat with him for a while and, you know, if if he has some good advice, I might take it. Yeah, I mean, hey, we do that from buddies, right? We do that. If I deem it important what he's saying, then I will decide that I will do what he is suggesting. But, you know, if I don't, well... You gotta be tough. You gotta be you gotta stand on your own. We live in a world of autonomous human beings who believe that they can make the rules, follow the rules on their own, and I don't need God. And those individuals are the Pharisees in the New Testament. We see them throughout the scripture, we see them throughout the world today. And their pride stands in the way of them coming to God and asking God for forgiveness for their sins. Pride ultimately will blind us to our need for God. The prideful, the prideful believe they can do it on their own. And this is the fascinating thing. And I don't really think I totally understand all this yet, okay? We live in a world who wants to promote pride at every opportunity. Come on, be your own man. Go out there, do it yourself. Be something you don't need anybody. You, 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 and while you're doing it, buy our product. How many commercials look like that? We live in an, uh, uh, in an age where our television shows 
glorify people who seem to not be interested in following the rules, who live by their own code, do their own thing, make up their own rules. And that's what we hold up as our standard. Huh. Nobody ever said that society was responsible for reflecting the image of Christ. The church, on the other hand, is responsible for reflecting the image of Christ. And what do we see in Philippians about the image of Christ? Have this same thought, have this same mindset that Christ had, who humbled himself to become like you and like me. Now, what's the problem with that? See, our pride says that's not humbling. That's not lowering yourself. We're talking God humbling himself to become like you. To say that the gap is, well, I'm not sure I can tell you how big that gap is. If I told you to humble yourself and become a slug, you'd go, that's stupid. Yet is that gap smaller, larger than the gap that Christ covered to become like us in order to save us? But you know, Christ isn't telling you to humble yourself and become a slug. He's telling you to humble yourself and be a servant to those around you. We can do that. We can do that. But we choose not to do that because it interferes with our pride. Go ahead. That's where we're headed. That is where we're headed. Did you hear him? He said... When you get humble, God will give you wisdom. But we're going to get there in just a second. Richard Foster, in one of his books, makes the comment, many of us are willing to serve other people. Very few of us are willing to be a servant. Because being a servant means I lose control. I give it up. You know, I can serve you and be as prideful as the most prideful person in the world. Look at me. I went down last week and I, I fixed lunch for the poor people. Aren't I cool? I didn't do it, by the way. But, you know, I can get rather prideful about that. I've used this illustration before. I worked with a coworker one time who was wrestling with the things of God. And he was all excited that he had given $100 to this good cause. $100. And he wanted to tell me that he had given $100. Aren't I? And I'm sitting there thinking, you're a single engineer, you have a $30,000 stereo system, and you give $100, and you expect the angels to start singing? Now, in his defense, he was getting started. He was getting started. It is a path that we go down. But that's the way our minds work. You know what? Last year, I spent two mornings helping the poor. 
Here, pat me on the back. We're willing to serve as long as we're in control and as long as our pride can be puffed up while we're doing this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. That is an interesting phrase. In fact, I actually looked up in the dictionary. Disgrace. Dis, what does that mean? It means to take a word and flip it around, to turn it on its head, to get the reverse of whatever the word is, the Latin root dis. And what is the word? Grace. God gives grace to the humble. The prideful get disgrace. And when it comes to our relationship with God, what you don't want is disgrace. What you want is grace. But our pride continually blinds us to our need for that grace. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom, which was the comment that was made just a moment ago. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the starting of the path. In order for us to walk on the path of wisdom at all, we have to recognize that we are not wise in and of ourselves. We need the wisdom that God gives. And when I humble myself, then God promises to give us wisdom. But surely there's a better way of getting wisdom, right? Work real hard at it. Be tough. Be your own man. And you will adopt the wisdom of this world and will not achieve the wisdom of God. It is it is impossible for me to overemphasize the necessity of humility in our relationship with God. It is impossible for me to overemphasize it. As I have said repeatedly before, there is a God and you're not it. And we have to start... At that, lo at that point, or we are not going to understand anything about the path of wisdom. Remember, we had uh, two lessons about listening to rebukes. What does pride do when it is rebuked? Come on, this is easy. Pardon? Puffs up. Gets mad. Who are you to tell me what is right and wrong? Who are you to try to tell me that I'm going down the right, wrong path? We do this with each other, and we even do it with God. 
Who are you, God, to tell me what to do? That is pride, and it will, it will ultimately destroy us. You can go read Paradise Lost by Milton, where he talks about Satan, and obviously it is a work of fiction, based on the fall. But Satan's most famous line from it is, better to rule in hell than be a slave in heaven. His pride, his pride was more important than being in heaven or hell. I am the master of my own fate. Now, the problem that I alluded to a while ago that I don't really claim to know the answer to is we live in an age that seems to glorify and reward the prideful. We really do. We reward those who do flamboyant things out in public, who put themselves forward in every situation, who are always talking about themselves, who are always pointing out their accomplishments to anyone that will listen. I will contend that ultimately that doesn't work. Ultimately, I know it doesn't work because ultimately they're going to be judged by God, not by the media or the world that we live in today. I would also contend, though, that even in this world, there are limits to how much you and I want to hear about how great you or I are. We do get tired of those who are continually putting themselves forward as the master, as the greatest, as, oh, I did great things. Ultimately, we get tired of being around people who talk about themselves all the time. So while I am very confident that in eternity the pride will destroy you, I recognize that in this world some people seem to get a long way with a lot of pride. We, as we walk down the path of wisdom, are not permitted to go in that direction. Now, I might throw in a little caveat. In fact, we could have a long discussion about this. There are some who seem to believe the best way to fight pride is to make sure that you don't ever do anything that's worthy of pride. Okay? No. We are to do the best that we can do for the glory of God. C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of the architect who builds the great cathedral. And everybody admires this as the great cathedral. And the architect knows that it's a great cathedral. But he would know it just as well if somebody else had built it. And that's the key. It is a great cathedral because it is a great cathedral made to the glory of God. If I only think it's a great cathedral because I built it, 
then all I am really interested in is my pride. We, as believers, are called to do great things to the glory of God for the glory of God, not for our own edification. And that's hard. That is hard to do in this modern world. And then as we got into the joke a while ago, then we start getting prideful about our humility and you get into a strange loop there. Remember, there is a God, you're not it. There is a God, he wants to tell us how we ought to live our lives. In his grace... He wants to tell us how we ought to live our lives, not to punish us, but because it is best for us to listen to him. And we are to humble ourselves, and the scripture promises us that God will heap rewards on us when we do so. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. We have the illustration that Christ uses of when you go to a banquet. You know, in theory, you go to a banquet and the host is sitting up there and the important people are next to the host and you work your way down the, the, the food chain, right? He says, when you go to a banquet, don't go to the head of the table as if you belong at the head of the table. Sit down on the table and then if they want you, they will move you up Because the embarrassment, the disgrace of being moved down is very bad. Just an illustration. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. What is duplicity? Not doing what you preach. We've talked about these people before in here. We have me, who sits here on Sunday morning, teaching you this lesson, acting like I'm the greatest thing in the world. And then tomorrow I go to work, And I am a totally different person. Because, hey, in the church world, you're supposed to act one way. And in the real world, we like that word, don't we? The real world, you're supposed to act some way different. And my greatest fear is that one of my coworkers will show up in my class someday. Because then I'm doomed. That is duplicity. When I have a relationship with God in public and no relationship with God in private, that is duplicity. When I use certain words in church or around my kids and a whole different colorful vocabulary when I'm around my buddies, that's duplicity. Now, There are things that are appropriate for one group and not another group, okay? When you're talking with children, you use different words than when you talk with the. I mean, we all know that, but that's not what we're talking about here. 
What we're talking about is that I want to appear in this group to be a certain kind of person. And I want to appear in this group to be a different kind of person. Why do I do that? Come on. Why would I do this? To be members of a lot of groups and acceptance. That's exactly it. I want the rewards of this group. So in order to do that, I have to fit into this group. And I can do it really well. But I also want the rewards of this group. I want them to say, hey, boy, he's cool. So I do the things of this group and that group and that group and that group and that group. And I live my life in fear that somehow these groups may all get together someday and I am toast. Go ahead. Exactly. We talk about being two-faced when we talk about people who talk. I tell you one thing, and I tell you something totally different. This is actually bigger than that in that it's our entire lives, but it is certainly part of that. The art of a politician. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Somewhere in this chapter, we're going to talk about politics, but it's not going to be today. <laughs> the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Notice the connection. If I am one way in this group, and I'm a different way in this group, and I'm a different way in this group, the implication is that when I'm in this group, I am being unfaithful to this group over here. I am a Christian on Sundays. And on Mondays, I'm something totally different. That isn't just playing the game. It is breaking the covenant. It is being unfaithful to my relationship with you. My relationship with with God. It isn't just playing a game. It is labeled as unfaithfulness, breaking the faith, breaking the covenant that I have. Now, I might also add that if I'm this way with this group and I use the language and I use the... When I come into my church group... I am being unfaithful to that group. Now, it's not a group worth being faithful to, maybe, but that's a whole different story. The opposite, the opposite of duplicity and being unfaithful, the opposite of that is integrity. Integrity means that when you're in the dark, you act just as w the same as when there's a spotlight shining on you. I will give you the perfect example of this, and I've used this before. Every year in this country, millions, millions of men and women travel on business trips. Every one of those men and women spends the night in a hotel by themselves. 
on a with a television that has channels that you can pay some certain amount of money and watch movies that you would not watch at home. And some hotels make a higher profit margin from their movie sales than they do from their rooms. Why? Because they know that when these people leave their family settings, their co-worker settings, that they are going to be unfaithful. Maybe not physically unfaithful, certainly emotionally, spiritually unfaithful. And it's huge business. Huge business. But you see, the man of integrity, the woman of integrity, is the same whether they're on a business trip in Timbuktu where no one they ever will, they meet, they will ever meet again. They're the same there as they are when they are in the middle of their family meal. That is integrity. Now, it's hard at times. It's very hard at times. We all want to fit in. We all want to be in whatever group we happen to be sitting with at the moment. We really do. Taking the gospel of Christ, taking the path of wisdom and integrating it into the business world, the world over here, the world over there, is difficult. It is. That's why we need a community of saints, of believers, to help us to do that. But whether it's difficult or a piece of cake is not the issue. The issue is, are we going to be faithful or are we not going to be faithful? The integrity of the upright guides them. It shows them how they're supposed to live their lives. I told you that sometimes having integrity is difficult. Well, usually having integrity is easier. Why? Because you don't have to remember what group you're in and what you said in this group versus what you said in the other group. You don't have to be schizophrenic. You know, I, I, I live in fear that one of my coworkers will show up at church. I live in fear that somehow how I act at work will pop out. We live in fear of all of these things. But the man of integrity, the woman of integrity, only has one lifestyle. And they're going to live that wherever they are. If they fit into the group, great. If they don't fit into the group, sorry. The person of integrity is going to be faithful to their relationship with Christ irregardless of where they are at any point in time. And that's what we're called to do. The integrity of the upright guides them. It shows them which way they go. I mean, I remember years ago reading a story about this individual's experience in a concentration camp. Bad, bad experience. 
And they said one of the worst things about it was you never knew how you were supposed to act. Because the killings were almost random. Some days they shot people because they moved too fast. Some days they shot people because they moved too slow. You just didn't know. And that's the way the person living the life of duplicity is. They never know. They think they can fit into this group, and they think they can fit into that group, but they're, the, ang- the anxiety eventually will get to them. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Ultimately, you're going to get caught. Ultimately, you're going to get caught. In a day that we live in with so much media, with cell phones that record everything that gets done, with YouTube, all of this stuff, to think that you can be, for example, a politician or a celebrity and do something really crazy and stupid and the world not find out about it, your chances are pretty slim. Pretty slim. We are going to end there. I did get an email this week to encourage me to finish on time since there is a class that comes after our class. So we made it through three whole verses. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us integrity. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to see the duplicity in our lives that we would seek you above all else and in every situation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.